and welcome to the Almost LA podcast. My name is Aiden. Hello, my name is Audra. Son and mom. So, la, we this is our two-parter. Mm-hmm. This is two part two. This is part two. Of what was the last one called? Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, Laurel Canyon? Mm, Laurel Canyon, part one. Okay, so basically <laughs> yesterday we recorded part one of this podcast. Uh, we went over the history of uh, the Sunset Strip scene, singer-songwriters, folk musicians, in the mid 60s uh history of Lowell canyon in the late 60s and then we ended with how basically crosby stills nash and then sometimes young mm-hmm. came together in not a band but sort of a super group of songwriters exactly so now so now here we are here we go we're at the history we're going to talk about the history of basically their quote quote band kind right of thing. right mom All right, yep cool. beginning of their band so let's do it so Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young played their first paid gig, you know, in uh, Chicago and in 1969. They had been rehearsing in Laurel Canyon. There's a, actually a cool shot um, of them rehearsing in someone's driveway. I can't remember whose driveway it was. I'll post on Instagram. Um, and Joni Mitchell opened for them. In this, and a day they were on stage, they were like, hey, tomorrow we're going to this place, Woodstock. We're not really sure what this is about, but some festival. And so they flew to Woodstock the next day, played for 400,000 people, and they were completely blown away. And on stage, I think it was Stephen Stills was like, hey, you know, this is our second gig and we're scared shitless. That's basically what he said. Yeah, for real. <laughs> and then on top of it, their instruments didn't show up. I believe that it was on a, their instruments were on a helicopter or something and it was like mechanical issues or something that had happened. So Jimi Hendrix the legend let them use his gear which was pretty cool i didn't know that mm-hmm. so the the gear that hendrix uses in his woodstock videos that yep were also used by yep csny really yep isn't that cool well is your mind blown it. you're like freaking yeah, out <laughs> cool because i've seen the hendrix woodstock videos and listened to that album like eight eight hundred million times yes i'm sure um and then they won grammy for best new artist in 1969 which is pretty cool wow so with Young, Reeves, and Taylor now in the band, there was a big rush to get their second album out, of course. So in March of two thousand, so in March of two thousand seven. Oh, they've been around for a while. <laughs> what a random date to throw out to. <laughs> in March of two thousand, I was born. <laughs> yes. Right. In March, nineteen seventy, their album Deja Vu was released. I mean, that's a pretty big turnaround. That's like. A handful like six months or something it's crazy from when they yeah. were playing and, their gig. and i listened to the album it's really good it's amazing yeah it's really good um it had three hit singles uh they had a cover of Joni mitchell once again of her song woodstock and two yep. two graham nash songs uh teach your children well and our house which we played yesterday the album as of 2017 had sold eight million copies pretty cool is that a lot eight million total <laughs> yeah uh no yeah actually they, they I would made say. it sound like it's a big not, deal yeah it's not like a smash i don't i don't know actually yeah well. i guess I, i'm was little when cds were popular so i'm <laughs> not really sure uh that would have been an a track or a vinyl <laughs> well so i'm i'm Back talking in, in terms of in terms of record sales i don't know what a big number is vinyl first and a track do you I even know, know what Nirvana an a track is, a, is uh from that 70s show yeah yeah there you go eric wanted a cassette player in his car and then they got him an 8-track instead even though he specifically asked not to get an 8-track 8-tracks he had to pretend to be happy about it yeah i had tons of 8-tracks 
Um, it was the highest selling album for each members in their whole career. So the Deja Vu album was overall their, everyone's best album, including all their solo stuff. And then of course the BS started. Um, so before their second tour even started, Stills, who had, they had kind of had this um, time off, Stills came back and just fired Reeves. And um, Stills said it was because Reeves thought he was an Apache witch doctor and was, was yeah, you heard me right. Stills thought Reeves was an Apache no, witch doctor? No, Reeves thought he was an Apache witch doctor. He thought himself was a pa- Yes. Reeves it, thought Reeves was an Apache witch doctor. Yes. Okay, well, yeah, then fire him. <laughs> so he, he was kind of starting to freak everybody out. He was, you know, I'm going to uh, make a huge assumption here and jump and say he was on a ton of drugs. And <laughs> yeah. But hey, man, that's a pretty cool thing to be as Apache witch doctor. Yes, yeah. He also was playing super fast and erratically. and Nobody could kind of keep up with him. So it sounds like he was just kind of all over the place. Um, but on top of that... Uh, Stills had actually gone to London during their break and had started playing with Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton a lot. And he met a guy named Calvin Fuzzy Samuels, who was a transient Jamaican guy. Um, they ended up clicking. And I think he just wanted uh, Fuzzy to replace Reeves, basically. So um, that was it. And then Young, of course, Neil Young retaliated. He was super pissed because he really liked Reeves. Um, and told Stills he'd only stay if Stills fired Taylor. So now there's this like back and forth, you know, BS with this bass player, the drummer, where they're like, oh, you're going to fire that guy? Well, I'm going to fire your guy, you know. So Taylor was out. (laughs) So they ended up firing the two guys that they kind of started with. Um, And so they ended up hiring, um, it says John Barbara, but that's absolutely not right. I think it's Barbara. Um, I think that's how you say his last name. But he was formerly with the Turtles, which is a, a big band back right. then as well. Okay. Um, so this started to create like a big rift between Young and Stills, which was kind of always there a little bit. But, you know, now they're just being petty. And then um, the pettiness was kind of put on the back burner once the Kent State... Uh, massacre happened on may 4th 1970 and if nobody knows what that is um it was unarmed students got shot by the ohio national guard during a protest against the bombing of cambodia Um, 28 guardsmen fired about 67 rounds in 13 seconds onto students killing four wounding nine one who was permanently paralyzed and so the band got together in quick response because they were obviously everyone in the country and the world was appalled by it and there's these graphic awful pictures that you can see um online that are i think one of them won like a you know what photo of the year award whatever those are called um Mm -hmm. and so so in a quick response to that they wrote ohio uh and they recorded it live and they for once put their egos out of the way and along with their passion and anger about what had gone on they made a pretty great song um, and after the Kent State incident, the 60s kind of peace and love uh, turned into violence. And there was a lot of assassinations at the time, the Manson murders that happened and Vietnam um, in full effect, Vietnam in full effect. So happy go lucky time was over and everybody started protesting and psychedelic funk was kind of making music harder and groups 
broke up and the canyon seemed to, you know, um, being affected by that. And I'm going to play you Ohio. You heard Ohio before? Yeah. You'll know it I when you hear it. I was just listening to it. Also, Woodstock's my favorite song on that uh Oh, yeah? That album, yeah. Okay, here's Ohio. drums are uh everything about their music i was listening to that documentary they were saying that the the drums are real simple there's a lot of space between like the vocals and the guitar it's a little bit of bass bass so it leaves this really nice open like free sound hmm. so you see how those you hear how those drums are the doom yeah doom pa, pa bass snare it's like yeah. it's a super like four on the floor or whatever it's called simple beat they're just like tons of guitar and then their big harmony. It's like such a signature sound. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, it's awesome. That's interesting because I don't know anything about that. Um, okay, so during the second tour, Stills' drug use and ego um, took a crazy turn. And yeah, he seems like he's really like trying to front things and like trying to control everybody all he, the time. He's, Even though they're all big egos, he seems like he's like really kind of an asshole. He's, I think he's the obsessive one. He, yeah. you know, so, and I think when, you know, you do Coke, um, you can't shut your shit down, you know? Um, so during the second tour, they ended up firing um, stills for two shows. And then he ended up coming back. Um, but at the end of that second tour, they broke up again for good. So yeah. how did just... they, how did they, well, I guess, I mean, wasn't, he was like the main songwriter. Stills. Yeah. Like they all, mm-hmm. they all contributed on vocals, but they were saying that stills wrote most of the music. He just and poured ha- over it night and day. He would do coke at night or whatever, and right. he would just like write ridiculous amount of songs. So how could they fire him? Uh, he was being an asshole, <laughs> oh, okay. and he was yeah. he was erratic. I mean, he, he, you know, I don't know how far you got in the documentary, but you know, you see this. You know, there's footage of like these chill hippie parties, and he's just like throwing punches left and right. He just uh, really? he jumps up and just kind of freaks out and goes after people. So he's just you know he's he's scrappy. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that, you know, they all contributed songs and and they all had great songs, you know, which was a cool thing that they had. So that's why they have such an, an amazing amount of, um, you know, songs to go to when they're like playing live and for the records and everything, you know, but I don't know if Stills, I think he just had the volume, you know, but, you know, I don't know who had the most songs recorded on albums, but I think he, his volume was just seemed to be more. It doesn't mean that his quality was better, you know. And also, just... we should probably recap real quick. Uh, it was Neil Young and Stephen Stills in uh, Buffalo Springfield. Right. And Crosby were, was in The Birds. Crosby was in The Birds, which had ruled the Sunset Strip. Right. Birds ruled the Sunset Strip. Buffalo Springfield was coming up. And then all of them kind of disbanded from those groups at the same time, came back together. Right. And Nash was with the, the Hollies. Right, and then mm-hmm. he was a pop star, and then he right. kind of 
came into the Laurel Canyon scene, loved it, turned into a hippie. Right. That's how they all came together. Right. All right, continue. Okay. So, you know, when that tour, the second tour ended, the band broke up. Um, they would come, you know, this was, and this was their thing. They would break up, they would get back together, they'd fall out, they'd reconcile. So at one point, Stills and Young had a duet, and Crosby and Nash had a duet, you know, and then they'd kind of flip-flop with stuff, and then they'd plan stuff, and then they'd get mad at each other. Um, in 1976, I'm kind of jumping ahead because I'm going to go back to something else. Um, while making Long May You Run, Stills and Young deleted Crosby and Nash, uh, all their vocals from the album, which completely pissed them off. and was like another reason why they were like, screw you guys, that they went two different directions again. So it was just, you know, constant battles. And, you know, from watching the documentary 50 by 4, you you realize that, you know, the guys that were working with him, you know, in the studio or, or touring with them all knew they were geniuses and just kind of dealt with, you know, the BS because it was coming from a place of like passion about the music and wanting to play. And, you know, um, even though it did get super annoying left and right, but they always kind of had the feeling that it's like it's like a couple that constantly breaks up and get, gets back together. You're like, oh, here we go again kind of thing, you know. Right. Um. So, uh, Crosby Nash agreed, you know, and all these, you know, at some point for everybody to get back together and they would do a trio and Young would go off in his solo career. And then eventually, um, you know, in 1974, about four years later, after they kind of did their duet stuff and solo stuff here and there, um, they agreed to get back together, the four of them for the quartet and go on another tour. And this was called the doom tour. Uh, between July 9th and September 14th, 1974, they played 31 shows um, on a tour that took them through the U.S. and up through Canada. And then they ended it with a finale at London's Wembley Stadium playing to 90,000 people. This, to that date, was the most aggressive tour by any band at the time. So other bands had played stadiums, but the amount of stadiums and the amount of cities they were going to was considered super aggressive and gigantic. Wow. Joni Mitchell, Santana, the Beach Boys, and the band opened for them. Um, so it, the playbill was actually super amazing, too. Uh, it was a in, totally insane atmosphere. Chris O'Dell, the road manager, told Rolling Stone that before the tour, he saw people unrolling cigarettes and dumping out the tobacco to fill it with pot. And then they'd meticulously roll back up the cigarettes and then put them back in the pack and then seal it to make the pack look at like it was unbroken. And they really? did this with like hundreds of packs so they could have it all through the airport, through customs so they didn't get busted. And then they would undo these vitamin C cap caplets, you know, the ones that you can like pull apart Yeah. and they would dump out the vitamin C and then fill them up with Coke. <laughs> so the cigarettes had pot in it and the vitamin C caplets had Coke in it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Odell said, quote, said one time quote one time they spilled cocaine on the on the carpet they just got down on the floor and sniffed it off the carpet end oh, quote classic coke addict move. <laughs> jesus graham nash said that they had a guy on the payroll that actually brought coke so he was just the, the, the basically their coke dealer and anywhere they went you know in any city the promoters supplied drugs which is you know that's what happens today so right, yeah Back then, it might have been like, whoa, but, uh, you know, that's, I don't think anybody's surprised by that. Nash, at this time, too, started taking Percocet and Percodan, and he called them, I don't give a shit pills, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious, because he just said he just stopped caring at some point yeah. when he was on that stuff. 
obviously there were groupies everywhere and I read some pretty interesting funny stuff that I'm not going to share with my son but if you can look it up yourself and use your imagination (laughs) all right I respect that (laughs) yeah we can gloss over that part uh, because they were playing stadiums, Crosby said that, uh, Steve, quote, Stephen and Neil were punching well over 100 dBs from their half stacks, unquote. Now, I don't know what that means, but I knew you would, and it sounds like it'd be pretty loud. Well, I, I know a chainsaw is like 90 decibels. How do you know that? I don't know. Just a random fact. Random facts. But um, so they're, they're punching. He said well over 100 through half well stacks. Well over 100 from their half stacks. Well, they just must have had a bunch of Marshall stacks lined up, pushing yeah. loud-ass sounds, which is kind of like the... There's, like a video of, there's a video of Jimi Hendrix playing uh, some festival, and he has like literally like 10 big stack amps behind him, and they're just like all cranked, and he's just standing in front of them with his guitar, like pushing this monster yeah. sound to like thousands of people. So I don't know. Sure I don't know how big either way, amps sick. were back then or how loud they could get, but apparently that was loud. Are they all deaf? It Are was so loud now? that he said their harmonies, you know, weren't loud enough. And when you, when you didn't have big vocals like that, the harmony sometimes got lost. So um, I think it sounded like they were a little worried that maybe it wasn't as their best performances, but I don't really think anybody cared. I think it was one of those cool um, times where people were just going crazy. Um, their good friend, yeah. Mama Cass, you know, who was the one, if you remember, who introduced Stephen Stills to, uh, and Nat, uh, to Nash and to, uh, David Crosby when Nash came into town, she's the one that, you know, they they went to her house a lot. And then the picture that I posted yesterday on Instagram with everybody, you know, Joni Mitchell, David Crosby, um, Eric Clapton and Mama Cass's little, little daughter in the yard, you know, that was her house. She died. Um, in August during that tour and that hit everybody pretty hard. So that was kind of a bummer moment. Um, the tour made $11 million for back then. It's it a ton of money, uh, but they were getting robbed blind basically by promoters and, and other people. Uh, each of the four members of the band went home with less than half a million dollars. Uh-huh. Really? Um, Wow. One of the guys, I think it was Nash, was saying like he didn't want to poke blame at anybody, you know, but the money obviously went somewhere and who knows if it was going to the drugs or the Lear, supposedly they had Lear jets to everywhere. And, and I read another thing where every time they went to a hotel room and you know, all the hotels they stayed at, they had their, the pillows had to have their CSNY uh, logo stamped on them, which, so... Uh. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure the money went yeah. somewhere then. <laughs> yeah. Crap like that. So, uh, by the late, uh, so, you know, that was that doom tour and you can see a gazillion things on there on the internet. I keep saying gazillion. I don't know why I keep saying that on the internet about it. They actually, I believe there was video of the festival or some of the tours and then they actually, I think it was in 2014, they came out with a box set called uh, CNSY, it's, I think the album's called 1974, um, with all the songs mastered on there. So by the late 1970s, Crosby had a serious addiction and seriously over the top more than um, the other four. 
he was very ill and wasn't showing up for some of the rehearsals. And, and if you see clips of him during this certain time, he basically looks like a zombie on stage. And they were kind of covering some of his vocals with their um, other band members that weren't part of the main four to kind of cover his sound and, and help him out a little bit. So they were, you know, they took care of him. And he and Stills were very into free basing at this point into the eighties, especially, um, free basing. I don't know. I think it's when you, the cocaine, you mix it with like water and you, I think you inject it. Like you, you heat it up and like inject it. It's basically crack. Um, from, if I'm wrong, somebody who free bases, let me know. Um, (laughs) or don't, don't, yeah, or just go to rehab, uh, take care of yourself. In the 80s, he was arrested multiple times and went to jail in 1982 in Texas for about six months on drug and weapon charges. I'm going to kind of get into his little, a little bit of David Crosby crazy history. I'm going to digress for a little bit because it's, um, he went on these crazy benders. So at one point he was freebasing, passed out and hit a tree and it got busted. And then he was also arrested a couple of times with guns in his car and one of the police at one point was like, dude, what do you get this gun in your car for? He, and he was like, the only thing he said was John Lennon because obviously John Lennon had been uh, assassinated in New York. Um, so he was getting a little paranoid, right? Probably rightly so. Uh, another crazy story about him was he was partying in Mexico on his yacht, of course, and some vigilantes boarded his yacht looking for guns and drugs and they didn't find any. And so they planted some on him and they turned him into the cops thinking that, you know, they could get something out of turning him in. And Crosby ended up paying off the police officers, which ended up being an amount of $7 for each cop, American dollars. So nothing to him. And he, and he ended up keeping one. Yeah. He ended up keeping the drugs and and guns they planted on his boat. He took off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He just gets away with it. So at this point, you know, uh, Neil Young was like, look, if he can get his shit together at some point, we will reunite CSNY. Um, And, you know, I don't know if you got this far in the documentary, but um, when he was going through his problems, I think it was in the documentary, maybe it was in one of the articles I read in Rolling Stone, that, you know, that's when they, you know, they would kind of put aside their differences and, and they were really taking care of him and really, you know, if they weren't, they kind of had kicked him out and been like, see ya. I think he probably would have been dead or horrible, even, you know, something happened to him. Um, But I think because they were like, hey, man, show up for rehearsal. Hey, man, come do this. And at one point they were in Hawaii um, recording one of their albums and one of the band members, girlfriends would wait for him every day at the airport, just hoping that he would show up. And he never did. But um, during when she was waiting for me, he did eventually. So I think that the fact that knowing that people were, they're helping him and relying on him and we're kind of waiting for him. And they were like longtime friends of his that it kind of kept him going in a, in a sense. Um, so he, uh, later would, he, he got a, a well-documented liver transplant. Uh, his liver failed as you can imagine. And this was in 1994 and Phil Collins actually paid for his transplant and some people. Yeah. Phil Collins did. Um, so, uh, since 1982, the band, you know, they've been performing since then and they put out like four albums. Now 
Neil Young, did I, did I talk about, um, I think I talked about that. How far away, how far did you get into the, the, um, documentary? I only watched like another 15 okay. minutes. I okay. watched it today. So Neil Young probably had, uh, you know, after the seventies and all the craziness, um, you know, he went on to kind of have a bigger, re- uh, kind of a revival career than the other three, even though, you know, they would get together and tour as a group multiple times. But Young went on to become the known as the grandfather of grunge. Did you know this? Uh, I didn't know this. Ner- uh, Kurt Cobain, Eddie Vedder, frequently cited Young as a major influence on them. And, uh, and this kind of contributed to his popular revival from, you know, these grunge guys talking about Neil Young so much and it got people int- more interested in him. Kurt Cobain actually wrote about Neil Young in his suicide note. I guess they had kind of been acquaintances or something and Neil Young had at some point tried to get a hold of Kurt Cobain knowing he was having problems, you know, in the months before he committed suicide. Um, and Cobain quoted the, the Young's lyrics in his suicide. The lyrics were actually, quote, it's better to burn out than fade away. And and that's a line yeah. from uh, Neil Young's song, My My Hey Hey. Uh, Young tried to, you know, I already said that Young tried to contact him. Pearl Jam and Young uh, have a really cool video on YouTube from the 1993 MTV Music Awards in Pearl Jam's playing Animal. And then Neil Young comes in and plays Keep on Rockin' in the Free World. And then Pearl Jam kind of joins, or Eddie Vedder kind of joins him in that song. It's really cool. And there's a tribute al- album called The Bridge, a tribute to Neil Young, which was released in 1989. It features covers by alternative and grunge acts, including Sonic Youth, Nick Cave, Soul Asylum, Dinosaur Jr., and the Pixies. Uh, there's a long-standing story, which I thought was hilarious, uh, about uh, that Nash told for years and years, and people wondered if it was a myth because Young didn't confirm it until actually 1919, until 2013, sorry, when Young was on an episode of NPR's Fresh Air. And so the, the story goes that Nash went up to go visit Young at his ranch uh, that he had south of San Francisco. That he had a long time ranch up there. I think he had it up there until the 2000s sometimes, um, or the, at least the 90s. And he had a recording studio up there and this big ranch and, and a barn and everything. And he was up there in 1972 and uh, Young wanted Nash to hear something he'd been working on. So Nash assumed they were going to go up to the studio to listen to it. But Young told him to get into this rowboat and they rowed out to the middle of this lake. And so at this point, Nash is thinking, okay, well, maybe he'll bust out like a tape recorder or something. You know, I don't know what we're doing out here. And then all of a sudden, the house, his house started blaring music, and then the barn started blaring music. So the house was the left, acting as like the left speaker, and the barn was acting as the right speaker. And Neil Young's uh, producer, Elliot Mazur, came out and was like, he shouted at uh, Young. He's like, how's that, Neil? And then Neil yelled back, more barn <laughs> so that that became like a you know an immortalized saying that this one dude like put on a t-shirt and for years people thought it was like more barn you know a myth but he said it was real and it was actually tracks from his solo album called harvest 
So Nash said in a a CBS interview in in 1987 uh, that Stills treats everyone like a backup singer, and that's why they were always falling out. Um, And because Stills always wanted everyone to be, everyone to think that he was better than everybody else. He basically wanted to be perceived as the, the better one of the group because of all the egos. And Neil Young famously said on a BBC interview in 2009 that he, quote, I only care about the music. So that kind of shit. Yeah. So that's kind of shows you, you know, his mentality later on about, you know, still, you know, I'm only caring about the music, not about the drama that's going on. Um, Yeah. On March 6th, 2016, Nash announced on uh, that Crosby, Stills and Nash would never perform again because him and Crosby had a falling out. And no one knows what it was about. Uh, Crosby was on Twitter. He's active on Twitter and getting in fights uh, with um, who's the country? Who's the country guy that Tim uh, Ted Nugent? They're always fighting, I guess, because about oh yeah, Ted Nugent, the uh, super intelligent guy that has yes, great so they clash views. a lot. Just getting dumbass. Yeah, Aww. and Nugent's kind of butthurt. He's not in the Hall of Fame. So, because by the way, all these guys are in the um in the uh music Hall of Fame like two or three times each. Except well, yeah, except Nugent. I'm talking about CSNY. Ted, Ted Nugent is not, oh, okay. and Crosby was basically on Twitter saying, you know, you're not in there because of your political views, and you're not worthy of it. And Ted Nugent, I should have, I should have put the quote down. It was, it was this. You could, you could find it, but he went on this long rant of yeah. swear words, calling Crosby everything in the in the book, and he was very colorful. It was kind of funny. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, so as of 2016, Nash and Crosby are in this like fight apparently, and then in 2018, Nash was um, on a one of the clips I saw. He was on a radio show with uh, the band leader that used to be David Letterman's band leader. His name is completely blocking my mind, which I used to watch him all the time growing up. I can't remember right now, um, but he said he'd like to re- repair the relationship, and he seemed a little bummed out about it. So once again, even up until literally last year these guys are still getting in fights petty arguments and then wanting to make up and you know so they have a they all i think they all they are in love they all it's been 50 years you know that the documentary is 50 by four it's 50 years of these four guys doing this amazing music and along with that comes ups and downs of personality clashes egos you know, drug addiction, people getting divorced. I mean, David Crosby has 400 kids. I mean, I, I was reading his like biography about his kids and he's been married, had kids with some, you know, somebody, some people he married, some out of wedlock. Um, he had given up a kid at birth and, and now they're actually have a relationship and his, his that son goes on a tour on tour with him and, and like plays with him. Um, you know, they all have, you know, families and, and, I don't know if you know, um, you know who Melissa Etheridge is? She is, um, mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of genre they kind of put her in, but she was, you know, back in the 80s, 90s. She's, um, you know, the famous lesbian musician and she has all this amazing music. I think you'd know some of the songs if you heard it. You're just not being able to picture her. But with one of her partners, uh, David Crosby gave her uh you know, donated sperm. So she has two kids by David Crosby. Um, Yeah. So, you know, they all have this just crazy rock and roll 
lifestyles, but I think they all genuinely love each other. They've had a long history together. And I'm going to read you a little, little quote from the Los Angeles Times and then play us out with a song. So I hope everybody liked this episode. Here is a little blurb from the Los Angeles Times, um, August 24th, 1969. In Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, the rock world has four strong personalities. Each is a fine writer, an accomplished, mu- accomplished musician, and experienced lead vocalist. Each had reservations about joining another group, but each seems committed to making it work. Quote, we've all paid the same dues, said Crosby. Everyone here knows that the music is the the important thing. We want to play music together, and I believe we can do it. They are the most talented, most creative, most straight-ahead people I've ever worked with. On the new album, I'm having the best recording session of my life, he went on. I've wanted to work with Stills ever since I first heard him. I almost quit my band at one time to join him in Springfield. So I'm going to take us out with my favorite Crosby, Stills, and Nash song called Helplessly Hoping. Here it is, and peace out, everybody. Helplessly hoping.